session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Uh, again, the studio number 3104410555. So today I'm going to start with the book of the week. But before I even mention the next week's book and talk about the book for the past week, uh, I wanted to invite listeners to share their recommendations with me. I have a lot of books I want to read for the rest of the year and to put on the list, but I'm also open to hearing from you books that you would recommend, books you'd like for me to cover, and maybe I'll choose some of those. A caller recently came on the air and talked about a book, The Willpower Instinct, which I bought, so thank you to that caller. I will make that the book of the week in a few weeks, but if anyone else is interested in sharing a book, either on my Facebook page, Twitter, or Instagram, please go ahead and do so. And speaking of books of the week, so for this coming week. So reading it this week is The Invisible Gorilla by Christopher Chabris and Daniel Simons. The Invisible Gorilla, How Our Intuitions Deceive Us. And actually, uh, if you're interested, you can go to www.theinvisiblegorilla.com and check out some of the demonstrations they have, which uh, they cover in the book, but basically showing how sometimes uh, we actually think we see the world in a certain way, but we don't recognize what we're actually seeing or what we are missing. And there's some pretty interesting demonstrations they have there. So the book for this week is The Invisible Gorilla. I'll make sure to post a picture of that probably by the end of today so you can make sure you get the right book. But the book for this past week, which I'll be talking about today, is Iron John, a book about men by Robert Bly. Iron John, a book about men. And as I mentioned last week, this book is a little bit different than a lot of the books we've read this year that are very much in a self-help or very psychological domain, although this definitely relates. But this book is written much more from the basis of a story and is in a way more poetically driven and story driven than the other books, but very, very deep and has a lot of wisdom in it. So I hope if you hadn't read it, you did read it or you will read the book, but I'll talk about it briefly today. So the book, even in the title, when it says a book about men, um, I think that could rub people the wrong way or give them a bad message, which in a way is talked about in this book, that somehow being a man or masculinity uh, is getting a bad reputation or we can say historically has gotten a bad reputation because a lot of what men did was very bad as far as wars go and oppressing women and a lot of what they did using what they thought was their masculinity, but that there's actually a healthy and very positive side to masculinity that we should not lose sight of. And as Robert Bly mentions, it seems that we are in some way losing this, this idea of a healthy 
masculinity, and there's this idea that men and women have to be the same, or that men have to embrace their feminine side, and in a way neglect or forget their masculine side, which is not healthy. Now, he mentions this, and I agree with it, that it's good that men are becoming more in touch with their feminine side and can utilize that more. However, it doesn't mean there has to be this feeling that masculinity is bad. And it's almost as if masculinity has this toxic feeling to it, that to say someone is being masculine isn't a good thing anymore. It's a negative thing. But what he talks about in this book is how we can actually do that in a positive way. There's something very positive to masculinity, just like there's something very positive about femininity, both in men and women, and both men and women have both sides to them. So the story or the book revolves around this story or fairy tale, fairy story that has existed thousands of years about Iron John and in different cultures. He says it's in slightly different ways or different variations of it, but they have a similar theme. And what he also mentions, what I think is very true, is that stories that have survived thousands of generations usually have survived because they have some kind of wisdom to them. There's something, excuse me, I'm coughing for some reason. There's something to them that that has survived all these years. And that's why it's worth looking at why have these tales or these stories survived and passed on generation to generation. We know that very often the way we have taught each other historically has been through storytelling, by teaching each other how to be, how one shouldn't be, morals, and passing on the wisdom from our ancestors. We do it through story, something that also has been lost, but you see it in more traditional cultures. So in this book, the story goes, and I won't go through the whole story, but there is this kingdom, and there is a king, and he has a wife and a son, and there is this mysterious man, or there's this mysterious event happening in a lake nearby, and people who keep going there, they disappear. They don't come back. And eventually someone volunteers that I can go and try to figure out who is there, and he sees that there is something in the bottom of this lake. And so he goes with a bunch of men and they empty the lake and they find there's this man who is very hairy and is really what they call the wild man, or this is Iron John. Or it could be a Persian man, really, but in this case it is Iron John and he really is what the story revolves around, him and this the boy. And eventually the boy uh, saves Iron John because Iron John is put in a cage and then the story continues. But in a lot of ways, it's about the boy getting in touch with this wild man, which we can say the wild man is part of him also, and what he goes in that process. Now, what Robert Bly also talks a lot about is something that is missing in contemporary society, where there are these initiation rituals or processes that people go through that we no longer have. And he mentions that it's so important for boys in becoming men to have older men who help them through that process and who also separate them from their mother, but also even their father, but to give them this feeling of becoming a man and owning their own masculinity and their manhood. And in most traditional societies that still exist, or even some hunter-gatherer societies that still exist, and historically, there was almost always some type of initiation process, but that has been lost. And so he mentions in the book and the story outlines this, how 
men or boys to become men, they need to have older men who mentor them, who teach them certain things about being a man and also about becoming their own man, which we don't have anymore. Now, there's also a lot of interesting distinctions or uh, messages that I think are important in this book. One is the distinction between a soldier and a warrior. In a lot of ways, we might assume they're the same thing, but he there's a clear distinction that he makes. A soldier is a killing machine. It is just trained. A soldier is trained to just kill whoever is made to be known the enemy to them, which oftentimes isn't even really an enemy to them, but they're just told that this group or this nation is evil and you have to kill everyone in their path. Now, a warrior, on the other hand, can be equally as strong and powerful, but they use their strength to protect and they use their strength just to defend, not to kill indiscriminately, but to protect and defend. And so a man can have this warrior side of them side themselves, which is to protect, not to hurt, but it's very different from a soldier whose aim is just to kill and destruct and to use aggression and violence to get their way. So our aim as men essentially should be to become warriors, to defend and protect whoever is around us, our loved ones, but there isn't this necessity to have a violent streak to us that we have to actually want to hurt people. And this is where this idea of masculinity sometimes gets uh, confused. And he talks about how by masculinity, we don't mean machismo or some kind of uh, arrogance or putting other people down, which is something that many people associate with masculinity now, that you should put others down and be so confident in yourself that you make sure people know that you're better than them, essentially. Also, he mentions that it doesn't mean you don't have your emotionless, something we associate with masculinity now, that men shouldn't cry, that men shouldn't get sad or be vulnerable, none of which are true and none of which are healthy for ourselves as men or for the people we are in relationships with as a father or a husband or even just as a citizen. If we don't have that connection to our feelings and our emotions, this is not masculine. And actually, historically, that wasn't always the case. Great men were known to cry and to weep to show how much they cared about something to show how much they valued things. It was actually a sign of strength. It's only more recently that crying has become this sign of weakness, and especially uh, for men, a big sign of weakness and something that makes them unmanly. So it's unfortunate that that has become the case because it restricts the emotions that men are allowed to or allowed to express or feel comfortable expressing and makes them much more likely to channel anger or violence or aggression to express themselves and to cover these actual feelings of sadness and vulnerability that they might have. Uh, so the book goes through this journey of this young boy essentially coming into his own manhood and recognizing his own greatness. And as the story tells it, we have to allow for the boy to separate from his family. And this is something that both for boys and girls we, the Iranian tradition or Iranian families, and in general, many other families have a hard time allowing to happen, that we don't give our kids the space to then become themselves, which very often means they need to have space from us. They need to have their own room and their own world to create who they are and to find who they are. 
But most parents don't see this as their role. They think their role is to be there 100% of the time and that they themselves are supposed to guide them all the way through to their adulthood and help them figure out who they are. But without that space, they don't really have that opportunity to tap in to find out who am I? Who do I want to become? What is my greatness? What is my contribution that I can give? We need to give them that space to allow that to happen. Another thing that I, I think the book points out is that we have to allow ourselves to be connected or stay connected with nature. Of course, for our ancient ancestors, this is very easy uh, or was very easy. But for us, especially in a, some, a city like Los Angeles or other cities, it might be difficult. And most parents don't give their children these opportunities to connect with nature. Very often, these types of connections are a lot less structured and also a lot more messy than some of the things we like to provide for our kids. Organized camps or sports and all those things, which actually are very good, but they don't have that same concept or that same, uh, doesn't give them that same experience of really connecting with nature, which all men and women need to do to really connect even to themselves. So we've really distanced ourselves from nature and not recognizing the connection that we have. And most parents don't provide their kids these types of opportunities to connect with nature in a genuine way. They don't really see much of it. You have to almost allow for your kids to go out there, get messy, get muddy, play around, be in the wilderness, and even connect with animals and nature in other ways to really help develop and connect with themselves. Something can be missing there. So, uh, you know, this book is a very interesting one that it revolves around this story, but has a lot of depth and wisdom. There is a lot of poetry throughout, even some poetry from Rumi that he quotes throughout the book uh, in explaining a lot of different things about men and their development and what might be missing in today's society and what we might want to recapture to allow for our boys to become men. So I hope you will check out the book if you haven't already, Iron John by Robert Bly. And the book for this week is The Invisible Gorilla, How Our Intuitions Deceive Us, Christopher Chabris and Daniel Simons. We've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Talakwi. We'll be right back. Back, studio number 3104410555. Let's go to a caller, Radio Hamra. You're on the air. Hi, how are you doing? Good, thank you. Fantastic. Yes, um, my question was again on the topic of masculinity mm-hmm. and getting in touch with masculinity, particularly the sexual aspect of masculinity, and uh, kind of a practical way of doing that, especially, you know, con- considering. Um, uh, you know my my cultural background, which is Persian, uh-huh. and uh, the entire reason I'm asking this is um, so I have a kind of a very scientific um, or scientific method kind of approach to my goals, whether it be kind of the, the type of job I want to have or in a, it's in a gym, the type of body I want to have. I have this kind of a same approach to to 
the kind of person I want to be and the kind of relationship I want to have. And so, you know, I try to stay as close as possible to the, to reality and both outside and inside. That is the way I'm feeling, how consistently I'm having a certain feeling and so on and so forth. And um, what I noticed here when I actually moved here about eight years ago is that um, I kind of felt, I mean, specifically on the topic of the sexual aspect of masculinity, um, when I saw my friends flirting, when I saw my friends kind of talking about sexual topics with, you know, in this case, with women, um, it felt inappropriate to me. I kind of felt confused and shameful on it, and even girls who were interested um, in uh, in me, or apparently they seemed interested, I couldn't um, take a conversa- conversation kind of sexually. I felt confused and shameful mm-hmm. in a way. And um, although obviously it's improved significantly, but at the same time it can always improve. And I felt always that this aspect kind of permeated different aspects of my life as well. That maybe it's manifesting itself in the fact that I'm feeling inappropriate kind of making sexual comments when the interaction demands some kind of sexual comment. And um, mm-hmm. and I kind of wanted to see if there's a practical way because I feel like my kind of my masculine side of my identity is underdeveloped significantly. Um, in the book, you mentioned um, Iron John that yeah. we used to have um, kind of older, uh, established masculine figures who initiated the younger uh, guys to kind of put them on the right path. There was some kind of leadership, some kind of. Uh, um, uh, emulation, someone to model, and that person for me, um, most people is their father. But my, uh, you know, my father's an amazing person, but it's not the the, the he, he, he's not the kind of person I want to become mm-hmm. when it comes to masculinity. For um, what, is he not? Is it? Do you feel like he's lacking, or what? What is? What's your reason for that? It's not the right direction of masculinity that I want to be especially on the sexual aspect of it. I don't think he's comfortable with that Okay, from my perspective. Well, that's and a big part of it too. You know, even what you're saying, and we can get into it a little bit more, your own, my guess is in your family, uh, sex and sexuality was taboo and something that was very common in a lot of Persian families. We make it a very taboo and just a negative and bad topic. And so the kids learn from a young age and as they get older that sex and sexuality is a bad thing. Even more was, for women than for men, but yeah, 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 it was kind of it wasn't as bad as um, other kind of situations okay. I saw, but at the same time, you know, relatively speaking, it wasn't. You know, I obviously wasn't. I mean, many things aren't ideal, but this certainly was not. Um, it was kind of uh, if it, if it was talked about, it was very brief, um, and uh, they always were a proponent of me, kind of quote unquote, getting to know girls. At the same time, being kind of against the idea of me having a girlfriend, yeah, um, and which was kind of a conflicting message. I'm like, well, how am I supposed to get to know girls if literally I'm not seeing anyone? Um, mm-hmm. Which is kind of because you know it becomes kind of a fruitless endeavor. Mm-hmm. And so um, the first exposure I actually had was in America. Uh, how, how old were you when you came in. here? Uh, Fifteen. 15. I'm 23 now. Okay. Okay. And you came here with your parents. I came here with my parents, yeah. Okay. And now what is their, how would you describe their relationship? The relationship um, from, I mean, because I can only compare to so many, mm-hmm. um, but absolutely speaking from its own, it's good. It has ups and downs, but at the end of the day, from my perspective anyway, it seems to be good. 
Okay. Um, they seem to be close. Um, although, obviously, I, you know, I can't compare to any other family because I haven't lived with another family. But just absolutely speaking, it seems to be good. It seems to be functioning. It seems to be all right. Okay, and then how are they in regards to, like, would you say gender roles? Is it more traditional? Like, you know, the, your father is the man of the household and things go a little it's bit a more mix. his way? Okay. Yeah, it's a mix because my mom is um, continuing her education um, and my dad is fully supporting her. Decisions are more or less um egalitarian more or less um both sides participate although there are some very small but kind of uh kind of persistent and consistent things that you kind of feel that your the father might be trying to impose his position on you mm-hmm. um there's very min- minor or minute things on the surface but they happen so frequently that you kind of feel intruded Okay. I kind of feel that, um, and this idea of intrusion, this is something I've kind of re- got in touch with recently. I knew something was wrong when they did happen, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, coming to your room or kind of, you know, doing stuff with your, doing stuff with your, with your stuff, with your possessions without asking for permission. These are some basic stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's getting significantly better. We talk about it. But it's nice. At the same time, you know, if if things can't be set up, why not? If it doesn't, sure. if it wouldn't, right? If it wouldn't compromise any kind of moral principle, like I wouldn't say take steroids to get big. But if there's other ways, you know, to gain, you know, to get big more efficiently, why not? Sure. Now, so you you mentioned something about not having your own. It seems like personal space, or they might walk in your for a long time, room. for a very long time. Yeah. Okay, and they'd walk into your room without knocking or. It's, it's significantly better now. I asked mm-hmm. them. And, well, that's good. Um, yeah. That's good, but it shows us what kind of environment you, you grew up in. There was that intrusion. And I was, I was saying in talking about the book that both girls and boys need space to find themselves. And for a boy exactly. to come into his manhood, he needs that space to develop himself, to, to become who, who he wants to be and who he can be. Now, going back to the issue you brought up about sex, and there seems to be a discomfort you have. And also yeah. this mixed message of we want you to get married, we want you to you know meet someone, but we don't want you to date either. Which um, a lot of families give their kids, especially again more to the women to girls. That of course marriage is good, and we want you to get married at a young age, but it looks very bad that if you're dating, or we don't want you to date yeah. either. So it's like oh, I want to clarify. Oh yeah, sorry, yeah go ahead. I, I cut you off. No I want to clarify something really quickly. Um, I did have a girlfriend in college. Okay. Um, um, which they which. The, 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 their worry seemed to have been that they wanted to me to get into college first, and then you know if, if I am to have a relationship, have it there. Um, if again, from my perspective, from what I saw and from what I felt, it might not have been the best kind of direction. Um, I wish I um, kind of was in touch with women and knew them better, uh-huh. um, well, way beforehand. But of course, that's past. But I did have a, a, a girlfriend in in college. Um, it was for a year and a half, and among other things, I'm happy about it. Although, again, for example, I mean, this might be slightly uh, more detailed, but I mean, if it helps, so be it. Part of sex is dirty talk, straight up, right? It can be, and, yeah. Most people, yeah. I mean, some people enjoy it more than others, sure. Okay. Of course, sure. But the thing is, if if you're feeling that, well, you know, when it's happening, it's demanding, or it would be you know, in a way upgraded, if you can also connect from a different aspect to your partner, 
then why not? Because it's going to be even better, right? And even then and there, I, I, it felt inappropriate for me. Mm-hmm. Even there and there, I feel like, yes, yes, I mean, you know, I'm, you know, I mean, you know, I'm having sexual intercourse, but in terms of me connecting with that person on a deeper level, I felt like I could get connected much deeper, especially from what I've, you know, what I've, when I was talking with my friends, I was in a fraternity, um, which has its own story, its own chapter, its own kind of um, uh, strangeness. But um, I still felt like I could get connected better and deeper, and I'm self-sabotaging, basically. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how. Yeah. Well, there's some, yeah. yeah, no, it does. There, you know, th- it definitely seems like there's a discomfort you have with your own sexuality and even what you want and what you desire and maybe there is some of this that i'm supposed to have a certain respect and i don't want to be a disrespectful man and and do those types of things even if it's what my partner might want in that in that relationship or that exchange yeah exactly at the same time yes respectful at the same time respectful to both her and her needs and Mm -hmm. my own needs basically Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, there, there are subtleties, of course, but this idea is that I feel like there's something more basic and more primal in me that um, I perhaps have lost touch with. I, I think that's true. Or never let yourself get in touch with, because I even in how you talk and describe things, and you've mentioned being very systematic about yeah. things. A lot of relational interactions are less systematic, and we have to allow ourselves to to be more spontaneous and feel course, what we're feeling. And I think of that's course, something yeah. that's not easy for you. You know, for you, it's like, okay, tell me five steps to follow to have, you know, good sex with my partner and I'll follow those five steps. But one of those five oh, steps, one of those five steps is going to be, um, allow yourself to be in the moment and to be in the moment with your partner. And that's a part that I think is not going to be easy for you to have that. And I tried. Yeah. And I tried. Well, it's because like, well, it's one, yeah. you know, it's funny when you say tried because it's one of those, and I get what you're saying, but it's one of those things you have to let go. It's not like an effortful thing where I can say, okay, now be spontaneous now in this way because it's more of a letting go. Right. It's more of a yeah. letting go than taking control. But it seems that for you, control is a very important thing. Um, probably in a lot of areas, but even in this idea of I have to have control over myself or else these primal base parts of myself will come out and that's an ugly and bad thing that you there seems to be some kind of association you have with allowing yourself to just express what's at your deepest core um sexually yeah, i'm trying to hide something yes which means and exactly and it might be a personal thing something is not okay with me and then also a bigger thing of you know people in general we have there's this dark side of us and actually the book again i'm glad you're saying you want to pick it up to read it iron john talks about that that this quote-unquote darker nature you isn't really this dark bad thing, but there's some good in that too, in who we are and really getting in touch with ourselves in a more base or deeper core level. But I think that's very scary for you. And there is something you're protecting. So if someone could just tell you how to do it, you would. Or if you could try really hard or follow a few simple steps and get in touch, you would. But it seems that it's very scary for you to allow yourself to get in touch with that part of yourself. Yes, uh, I, I want to add really quickly, yes, um, although as time has progressed and as I have read more, done more, um, it's more or less right now, as like in a spectrum from fear to curiosity, let's say, it's more or less curiosity and mm-hmm. kind of almost childlike curiosity, like, whoa, I'm about to discover something like very interesting. This is going to be super cool. 
that kind of thing. I used to be scared. I would, I would perhaps say um, scared and almost uh, painful. I mean, the thought was painful. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I couldn't even see someone getting into it with someone else without feeling pain within me inside and feeling helpless. But as time has progressed, as I've, like said, I've, I've continuously tried to improve. And this is the kind of thing I have, and I'm, I'm, this is the, the kind of thing that um, keeps my sanity in check, basically, is that I try to stay as close to reality as possible, both, like I said, within and inside and outside. And I try to track these and see how they change and get feedback from the environment. Either use that feedback myself if I can, or in, or in this case, I'm calling you um, because I respect you and I respect your opinion. And I uh, try to see, you know, kind of how helpful that could be. I see. You know, as a feedback process. Yeah, well, I appreciate and, that. Now, let me ask you something. When you say when you'd see someone, people getting intimate, you'd feel pain? What do you mean by pain? So, I mean, um, let's say I see my friend um, doing something I can't do, mm-hmm. but getting particularly, it even doesn't even have, because I'm, obviously I'm not going to be in their bedroom, mm-hmm. right? But if it's, let's say it's in a park and they're getting particularly getting intimate, but it's a very beautiful and delicate way, with their partner, and, and you can see in their eyes that they're connected. I mean, it sounds cheesy, but it's true. You can see it in their eyes that they're very connected, that they're very close, almost the same person. And a while ago, almost a couple of years ago, that used to give me kind of a, a I mean, if you were trying to look, say, the, where the local lo, uh, location of the pain was, kind of in my chest area, of something that I, uh, as if I, as if my friend is a kind of person that I will never be able to be. Mm. Kind of a sense of hopelessness. That, yeah. oh, look how beautiful that is, but I look at myself and I hate myself, and I can't ever be like that. Oh. And, and and it was, um, I mean, I'm being honest, that's yeah. more or less the kind of feeling it was. Well, and, yeah, that's, that's, uh, a, that's a very strong feeling, even when you, and you say hate myself, of course, that that's very strong, but we're seeing, you mentioned yeah, yourself, that, that feeling of masculinity, feeling underdeveloped. It seems like you're afraid of your own masculinity afraid of your own almost strength emotional almost yeah. emotional emasculination i would call it yeah yeah that's very it is very interesting and you know i want us to continue this conversation we got to a commercial break so just hang on and we'll talk a little bit more about this and what's going on and, and see what we can come up with together okay sure, sure that sounds good fantastic all right you're listening to in session with dr fadir lockwe we'll be right back Welcome back. Before the break, we're with a caller. Caller, are you still there? Yes, I'm still here. All right. Okay. So we're talking about your own uh, experience. Um, and you yourself at the beginning of the call mentioned having, you, you thought you have an underdeveloped masculinity. Uh, yes, although, yes, yes. Um, I apologize. Although I just want to add, because I mean, it might help with the, the course of kind of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. This was uh, kind of the hate part. This was about maybe five, six years ago. Um, and at least it seems that I have improved significantly, consistently at least, from my perspective. Again, at the feedback I'm getting from environment, from people, and both myself and my emotions, 
it seems to be improving, right? Mm-hmm. I no longer feel shame in what I want. If I'm interested in a woman sexually, I'm open with it, and they respond really well. I'm not shameful in wanting to have sex. I'm not shameful in pursuing someone sexually where I used to. Okay. Um, now, I've worked on my self-esteem as much as I could personally. I'm still continuously working on it. I, um, I love the scientific approach that Nathaniel Brandon had. Um, God bless your soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, did he's ready six for the self-esteem? I'm currently reading his psychology of psychology of high self-esteem. Um, doing that, those practices, the, the, the sentence completion ones, the online ones. My issue was um, they're they're all good, they're all nice. None of them specifically targets the sexual aspect of me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's improving. It's nice. I, I feel it improving. At the same time, like I said. Just because it's improving doesn't mean you can improve it faster. Yeah. Or just because, yeah. And so, yes. No, yes. So something I'd say is like, you know, the good news is what what you're dealing with is there's something within you that you're afraid to let out, which is good because I'm saying you already have have that, but it's about you have this fear of letting it out, like I was saying. And actually, this in this book, this wild man in Iron John, the wild who, stallion, almost right. Yeah. Well, the yeah, there's wild stallion. Yeah, there's wild stallion, and in this book, he's an, uh, this wild man or Iron John who has this like darkness to him, but we realize there's something good there. And that's why I really am happy that you said you are getting the book and will read it. I think yes. you'll see a lot of value in that. But what I was saying is, you know, there's something within you that you're afraid to let out. And this is true for a lot of people. Um, many yeah. of us are afraid of our own greatness, afraid of our own um, power for, for various reasons, but we don't want to let it out and allow ourselves to actually excel the way that we can now for you it seems like there's something deep there and i, I want to talk more about your family to get an understanding of what else is there but there's this fear of letting out that healthy and strong part of your masculinity out of yourself and allowing people I to agree. see that i agree with that yes and now looking at your family you talked a bit about um you know your parents in a general way about their relationship what's your relationship like with your mother great question so it's funny because typically um it seems that uh, maybe from my pers- my understanding, guys seem to be closer with their dad or, or and girls with their mom. But I'm convinced that uh, with my type of relationship, I feel fairly comfortable. I mean, it, it has changed, has changed significantly, and I'll get to that. But um, ju- I feel just in general, kind of at any moment or whatever, I feel closer with my mother. I feel more comfortable okay. with my mother. Um, uh, then uh, with my father, uh, I have I suspect the reasons. Of course, I could be wrong. Um, I could be more open. I could be more even teasing if I want to, without even and and the arguments I get in with my mother, none of them are coming from a point of proving one is better than the other one. Mm-hmm. It's more oh we're going to have a discussion. That's cool. I'm fully engaged. Let's see where that goes. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of uh, making fun here and there, but it's completely lighthearted. Okay. And no one takes offense. And do you have any siblings? I have a younger brother, yes. Younger brother, okay. How many Five years, years younger? younger? Five years younger. Okay, and then... Five and a half years younger. When yeah. you say you're more... You know, you said something about with your mom, you're more comfortable, almost... I'm wondering, it, was there some discomfort or almost fear of your father? It's a fear of now he's going to get mad, and now mm-hmm. I'm going to mm-hmm. have to, uh, the whole vibe gets destroyed. Now I'm going to have to kind of make myself a little bit numb so I don't have to engage in the argument. It's emotionally draining. Um, I feel like my, uh, my, my person is being offended. And uh, for the longest amount of time, I have basically, uh, not the longest amount of time, but like a good amount of time, I basically emotionally um, let go of my dad. 
that hmm. I basically just talked with them just to talk and just to get it over with. I didn't want to invest any kind of emotion in our relationship because nothing good came out of it. And this happened consistently. It wasn't like a one-time occasion. Actually, um, this might be a bit over the top, but I actually logged these. Um, per, your your uh, conversations with him? No, 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 no. Feelings, kind of. Oh, okay. Um, or, or, or I mean, that would take a lot of time. Or, <laughs> right, or, or the particular points. Um, not, not quite like a journal, but uh, I try to, again, I try to stay as objective as possible, both to my emotion and to the situation, and I kind of track these. Like any, like, I mean, you could say like an experiment, but I try to see how it's going, how it's improving. Is the relationship nice? Do I feel happy about it? And consistently, this has been uh, bad. Okay. Just the past week, we had a long family talk, and uh, everything came on the table, and the relationship feels it has improved, um, like, very, very well. I feel more comfortable with my father, although not as quite as comfortable with my mom. And um, the one quick small thing I also want to add is that um, when I look back and when I consider all the factors from my perspective, it seems as though the mask, at least the masculine part of my identity has been continuously crushed by my dad, if that makes sense. It can. And, it, and I do want to talk about That's the thing I was, I was kind of feeling from you. Not only did it seem your masculine side could have been crushed by your dad, but also you saw your dad as this masculine figure, but as a negative figure. So it made you think the masculine part of yourself is bad too. That makes perfect sense. So, even though the masculine part that my dad had, was, it wasn't even, I wouldn't even call it necessarily healthy masculine. No, that's right. But I mean, just being, yeah. something about being manly was not a good thing. And maybe even you saw him, although you're saying your parents had a good relationship, but you know, there is something I'm feeling of you being almost closer to your mom, not even just as closer than you are than your dad, but almost maybe closer than she is with him. Um, you might have filled that up some. You might as well, in terms right. of emotional, yes. in terms of like friendship, that might might as well be true. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, and so you know, there's a lot that goes on with that dynamic that you're having. One is, you know, your father has become kind of like this bad guy, um, and because he's the man of the household, that manly part of yourself, you learn. I don't want to be like him. I don't want to be manly in the way he is. And also, you became sense, yeah. this emotional support for your mom. Um, and usually when a parent and a child has a too close of a relationship, what ends up happening is the child puts some of their needs away to be what the parent wants them to be. And so it's very likely you had to put parts of yourself away to take care of your mom or to be in that relationship with your mom. Um, but, and also, you know, sexuality of course becomes very confused when you have a close relationship with your opposite sex parent. So there's something about, there's something bad about that too. Or that I just want to be this support for my mom, see how good it is when I'm the good boy that is there for her and we connect emotionally. There doesn't have to be this other part. And you carry that with you into your relationships or even just into your own psyche in general that my emotional connected side is very good. Everyone likes it. But the sexual part and also masculinity is this bad thing that leads to right. pain. And I was going to say, you also mentioned your dad crushing your own masculinity. That That's a big problem too. Uh, right, a father right, needs right. to give the space for the son, just like the mother does too in a different way, but for the son to grow and develop into their own adult, into their own man. But it yeah. seems that your father, maybe even your father feels threatened by you in some way and has been I, pushing that. I felt that, um, I have felt that. Though I want to quickly add the, the relationship between me and my, mom, uh, my mother. 
I it's from my perspective, it seems to be fairly independent from either side. Okay. It's just um, as a good friend, in a sense that um, it, it appears to be again very mature. Um, I sometimes because she's getting her PhD. She's also she it, she if this helps, she's getting her. She has a fairly good control over her life. It seems. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it's more or less for us. It's just this funny conversation. Sometimes she needs help with her papers. In terms of comfort, it's the kind of comfort you have with a good friend or with a friend that you don't. You're not kind of afraid of. Oh my God, it's going to be. An, um, it's going to be. You, you don't feel as though you're walking on eggshells, uh-huh. right? Um, because of course, people get offended in comfort in uh, in in in, uh, in you know usual relationships and that's okay because then they can talk about that mm-hmm. and then it can improve the problem is this talking about it was never a big part with my father well that's what i was going to say you're saying walk you don't walk on eggshells with her which makes it seem like you're saying you did have to walk on eggshells or do with him so is he a very angry person was he ever physically abusive what 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 is his anger ne- like uh, never physically abusive although he always there was an unwanted tension mm-hmm. again it's improving we talked and to be honest and what it seems like, again, it is getting better. Though there was always this kind of unwanted tension that I'm going to make a wrong move, and now he's going to get mad, and now I have to kind of, you know, look down and kind of, like, eat my own emotions, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. and numb myself, and then just wait for it to end, basically. Right. Um, he is quick to anger, although he has changed, again, he has, he has improved, at least from the time we came to America, from my perspective, at least, and my mother's perspective, significantly, mm-hmm. right? There hasn't been a lot of anger issues, but at the same time, the tension more or less is still there. Does that make sense? Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, and also, you know, so there's obviously a lot going on, but when you're saying the way, you know, he's putting you down, or you're almost afraid to be yourself around him. I am afraid. That is absolutely true. Yeah. I am afraid of being who I am fully, expressing my opinions and... Uh, my views fully when I'm around him, which is one of the principles of the, that Nathaniel said, the principle of, of self-assertiveness. Right. That, and, uh, and yeah. that, so there's definitely that going on. And also there's this you know dynamic of um, maybe you feel afraid to, although at some level you want to overpower him, overcome him, you're afraid to threaten him. And so your own masculinity is a threat because then it can make you a competitor with him. And it's safer to not be in competition with him. Because he's you're you're slightly scared of him, he can overpower you. So it's much safer to become this other person, this kind of more the softer side, the more the emotional side. Exactly. Even though even though physically speaking, I'm I if it, if it, if the question of physicality comes in place, overpowering, I don't think I have a problem now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this seems like so. This is but definitely yes, and this you know what you're feeling has it started a long time ago. So it's not just about definitely today. absolutely. Right. Absolutely. This has started as long as I can remember. I mean, it is recently that I can put my finger on it, right? Yes. Because I know more, mm-hmm. but um, this has been going on for the longest time, and I never truly felt, and I told him this, I told my dad uh, straight up, I, I had him, I asked him to talk with me, and I took him to a Starbucks, and I told him that I don't feel, I told him that you and I could be up here, and I told him like how good of a friendship we could have. But we're down here right now, and I'm not. I don't feel any kind of friendship with you, mm-hmm. because my dad always said that. Oh, it's good, you know. After a certain age, you know, the son—it's not a dad and son relationship anymore. Uh, it's more of a friendship relationship, ideally. And I told him it's not true for us. It's not. 
I think that's a very good step that you took. Probably not an easy one. I, you know, as, if you listen, very difficult. I, was, yeah, difficult I'm sure step. it was. I, I talk a lot about having those uncomfortable conversations that we need to have to keep any relationship strong. Then good for you. Just, yeah. I'm very yeah, happy you did that. But what exactly. I wanted to say is, you know, what you're dealing with. I hope you can see there are so many layers to these things, and I find it always very fascinating. But we can right. see these family dynamics. It, so much is going on. There's a part of your your masculinity that you're afraid of, but you're also afraid to see it because then it might make you a competitor. But then when you're not a competitor with these other men, not even just your father, but the other men in your vicinity friendships, you feel less than because you, you don't get to, you don't put that part of yourself out, but you're choosing not to. So you're afraid of something that then confirms the fact that you're not as good as these other men but it's actually within you the whole time. So there's so yeah. much going on. And your relationship with your mother and your father, there's some complexities there. There's probably, and not probably, there's a lot of anger you have towards your father. That's very clear in how you talk oh, about yeah. him. Oh, it's, it's yeah. Been people keep saying, oh, you have to forgive. I'm like, I want to forgive him. It's getting better, but it's still, I mean, if we're being honest, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a process. I'm not, I'm not quite fond of him, yeah. No, for, for, yeah, I could feel that, absolutely. Forgiveness is not a one-step or just you say the words and it happens. But, you know, exactly. there's so much there with that aspect of it. But also, um, you know, you're, you, you're afraid of him, but you also want to overpower him. But it, it's very complex. And it's, you found a safer route of being the sensitive guy who's nice yeah, and, and kind. At the same time, at the same time, I'm not even thinking about competition. I'm not even thinking about... No, this is more unconscious. You're not going to be thinking about... All most, right, it's more yeah. unconscious. Yeah. Although it's, it's like with other guys, with other like guys who are my friends, Right, but other guys are sometimes going to be like a stand-in for your father. So they might represent him, even though you might not think of it, like, this guy's my age. So. Exactly. All but, of the relationship I have with them yeah. is fun. Number one, it's fun. Number two, it's constructive. Number three, even if we sometimes uh, make fun of you know, each other or whatever, it's from a heart, light-hearted place. No one is being offended, and if they are, we talk about it. Right. Well, good. And, no, what and I'm saying by standing, I wasn't just saying it's good they get to replace him. But I'm saying is you might not realize you're projecting a lot of your father right, material sure, onto yeah. them. So there's sure, something sure, yeah. you know when you're around them and you're saying like I would see them becoming intimate or flirting with a girl and I'd feel so weak. You know, this was bringing up a lot of these things of the little boy looking up to the father and not feeling strong and powerful. So there are so many layers and I know you're doing a lot of self-study, which is great. Keep that up. But even in our conversation, I hope you can see the benefit of if you were to talk about these things with a therapist, you would start to unravel much more of the complexity of what's going on. Absolutely. And And that was, uh, again, I apologize for cutting you. That was also one of my other questions I want to ask. I was going to ask you that if there is um, therapy, first of all, what kind do you recommend? Well, just someone uh, who, you know, I would say someone who, um, at some level works in a psychodynamic way, so a little bit deeper, not just CBT. You want to go for a while. You're not going to just say, okay, I have a phobia of dogs and I want to get over it. You're trying to unravel some deeper, complex issues that, and I'm not saying CBT is only good for that, but what you're dealing with is a lot deeper, and I'd want you to go for a while. You'd have to build a relationship with the therapist and really connect with them and explore. Because... A lot of what you're telling me too, you know, you've met, and, and I remember last time you called. It's very systematic, but a lot more of what you're dealing with is relational and more dynamic than just, you know, one, two, three, four. And it's going to take of some course, time to course, unravel that. Yeah. So I would highly recommend going to therapy. Be ready to go for months, even you know, it might sound strange, but years. Just be ready to commit yourself to that because there's so much here, 
and we only just barely, barely, barely scratched the surface. So right. I would hope you go in there and really get to unravel and work on some of these things. And you'll see that you are much more powerful than you, you allow yourself to be. You're afraid of it on one hand, but you want it so bad too. And you have this ambivalence that it's leaves you in the middle. It is self-sabotage, but I hope you see it's not just a, intentionally just to hurt you self-sabotage. Oh, of course, of course, There's yeah. so much anxiety or ambivalence about I'm afraid of what I want to become, or I, and I want to be so powerful, but I'm also afraid to become so powerful. And so you're stuck in this middle place, which creates usually a lot of anxiety, which I'm sure you're feeling also about yeah. how to act and be. Absolutely. And yeah. Yeah. So I would highly recommend, you know, getting in there and be ready for a process that's not going to be easy, but you seem like you, right. you're right. up for it. So I hope you would start that process yeah, I mean, soon. Just because, it's, just because it's going to be uncomfortable doesn't mean I'm not going to do it. Right. Good. That yeah. And the thing was also for, and this kind of to build on what you're saying that, um, and I told my parents that I want, uh, that, if, that I, I want to move out, um, which is, um, difficult perhaps for my situation because, like I mentioned last time, I recently, six months ago, I graduated from college. Mm -hmm. And I did fairly well. I did, I came out highest honors. Um, yeah. Uh, this was me moving, you know, immigrating when I was 15. So it was, it was, it was very uh, difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the medical route. And so I have my MCAT in three months, and then I have to be an EMT. I'm, I'm planning to be an EMT and so on and so forth. So moving out wouldn't it, it seems a very elusive kind of goal to be to be to, to kind of to consider all of the other things for, that's going on and then add to it more work for the rent mm -hmm. and so on and so forth and the biggest reason or number one or top two reasons for moving out was that whenever let's say there's a right direction and a wrong direction just for the sake of simplicity and in terms of personal development and growth and so on and so forth and when I was talking with my dad, and when I, whenever I interacted with my dad, it very, it very um, uh, uh, kind of uh, tangibly felt that I'm in the wrong direction, that I'm doing everything that's kind of wrong. You mean from his opinion? Huh? You mean his opinion would make you feel that way? No, even, no, just a mere, because um, a lot of it is non-communicative, right? Oh, I see. Non-verbal. A lot of it is non-verbal. Very tiny things that are non-verbal, but they're tiny, but they are consistent, persistent, and they hurt you just right. Mm -hmm. Those things that add up, and, and I had to actually, um, whenever I talked with my dad, I actually had to or interacted with him somehow. I mean, it's better. It's, it's better, to be fair, but it's still there. Mm -hmm. And again, we also have to be fair there as well. That whenever the, these interactions happened, I actually had to like go to my room or go outside to kind of recalibrate myself, if you will, so that again, I, I'm again, I'm highly focused. That that could again be highly focused. I could go about my studying. I could go about hanging out with my friends, and um, so on and so forth. Yeah, but I mean, so clearly there is, you know, that you're saying it might not be. He doesn't express it explicitly all the time, but he's definitely like you've talked about putting you down or making you not feel good about yourself or doubting yourself. I do want to wrap up to give other callers who are waiting a of chance course, also. Sure, sure, sure. But I would, you know, I would if you're thinking of moving out, I I would recommend that. It would be okay. a good step for you in the right direction. Right. Uh, I think it would be it would be tough as tough as as much as you want to move out, I'm sure it'd be tough for you too because I think you're attached to this a lot of things that are there. There's a lot going on, but I would of hope course. you also pursue, you know, going into therapy and getting ready for that process also. But I think it and and reading this book Iron John, I think it's timely that I talked about it today and you called today because so much of it I think will relate to you. So I hope you'll go through that process, read the book, go through therapy, move out, 
and continue to work on yourself and remember that you're afraid of your own power right now. And that's what you're right. going to be tapping into. Okay. I agree with that. Thank you so much. Thanks for um, calling. Best of luck to you. Absolutely. Thank you. And then uh, I'm sure we don't have time, um, but if you have time for 10 more seconds, you mentioned psychodynamic. Maybe. Yes, that's right. Okay. And, okay. and then, I'll, and, and then last 10 seconds, I promise. How do you know if the therapy is going toward the right direction? How about yourself? <laughs> That's the thing. A lot of times you don't. It's just like saying uh, a lot of relationships, a lot of we're talking about, you won't always know. It's a process. Okay. What I'd say is okay. it, you, you can go to a few therapists before you commit to one. But once you find one that you feel comfortable with, you feel like you're confident in working with this person, then stay with them for like six months to a year at least. So you won't know. You know, there aren't these checkpoints i can tell you after four times you should feel right. this after it, right. you know it's a very different process so i would say find someone you're comfortable with confident working with and then give them six months to a year and then you know go from there because it's a process much more than it's a you know step-by-step -step type of a thing absolutely thank you so much I my really pleasure appreciate thanks it. for and calling no worries have a good day bye you bye. too take care bye-bye all right we've reached our next commercial break studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 we'll be right back Back studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. Let's go to a caller, Radio Hamra. You're on the air. Um, hi, Doctor Bakuri. Hi, thanks for calling. Um, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Yeah, I, I should warn you before I start. I have a one month old. I hope you stay quiet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no problem. If he has any questions, let him know. He can ask them too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, my question is about my um, almost two-year-old son. Almost two? Three. Yeah, almost almost three. three, okay. Almost three. Um, yes, and you know how people always are worried about um, terrible two? Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's on the other side of the spectrum. He's totally reversed. And then um, I'm worried about him being submissive, if it's a right word. Okay. Um, how can I explain? Okay, um, you know, he, um, for example, he knows, like, um, this toy is his, right? But, um, if anybody wants to grab it out of his hands, he's fine. Mm -hmm. He just, um, go to the other toy. Or if, um, for example, if there's a line for a ride, and then, um, children are cutting um, in front of him, he just go to the other right. Um, he doesn't, you know what I mean? He doesn't uh -huh. defend whatever is his. Mm -hmm. um, so this is my concern. Okay. Now, uh, are either you or his father angry people? Do you guys show a lot of anger? Um, to each other, you mean? Or, and just in the household period, but yeah, to each other, to him. No, no, not at all. But not, not at all. okay, not to each other either. No. Okay, because you asked. Have a great I, relationship. Okay, I'm just curious because you asked me to clarify, so I figured you meant there's some anger somewhere. Um, no, we 
we don't have any anger. What the thing is, um, what I think is, um, you know, they have, uh, they need to have control at this age. Like they feel like they are in control of their life or um, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, he has it at home all the time. Like he is free to do anything unless it's like harmful or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we never grabbed any toy out of his hand. He doesn't know anger. He doesn't know if anybody, like, say, if you don't do this, I'm not talking to you. He doesn't understand any of those. You know, Um, like, what I see is he doesn't see that people can be bad. Like, if um, a kid bites him, he just smile and say, it hurts, and then he just forget about it. Hmm. That that's so. I mean, we don't want him to necessarily think people are bad. Uh, I'd actually rather he, he, you know, if he trusts the world, then he thinks like that's a better place to start than to be mistrustful or to think that that people are bad. I get. So it seems like you're afraid he's not going to stick up for himself or or um, ask for what he wants, and he's going to be too passive. Hold on. Um. I. I. You hear? I'm hearing it with a lot of noise. Okay. Um, I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, we're trying to adjust the sound on our end. Uh, Ramanjun is doing that right now, but it, it's the same that it was with the previous caller, so I don't know if it's still coming through unclear. It could be your phone or something like that. How is it right now? Um, it, it, can you please like, try um, like make it? I don't, I don't know what. There, there's okay, not much I can. I can try to sing it for you, what yeah, I'm going to okay. say, but there's not much I can do to change it on my end here. Okay, uh, I'm sorry. Okay. That's, no, that's okay. Um, I mean, if you can't hear it, you can't hear it. I, we'll, we'll try to see what we can do. Uh, Raman okay. is adjusting some of the the what he can do but i don't think there's much we can do on this side so if you can't hear me let me know um but so i was saying you it's your fear is that he's going to be too passive that he won't uh, that's right yeah. okay now when you're saying in the home though does he ask for what he wants is he very yeah uh, okay yes he asks what he wants and he he even protests if um like he doesn't like us to do something um but as long as you explain to him he's fine he's like okay. Yeah. Now, is and he in preschool right now, or what is he? Or he's in preschool. Okay. Yeah, he's in preschool. What do his teachers say about him? Um, they say he is a, a very good boy, <laughs> and he follows order um, instructions very well. Um, but I don't think they 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 go into details about it. I talk to them about this, and um, they never um said anything is wrong with him or I don't know how to say it but yeah okay he never gave me any feedback about this one I see well you know it's interesting because you know if you're running a school usually they kind of want the kids to not to follow orders and do everything they want it's not always the healthiest thing we want kids to have to be able to think for their own and have a mind of their own so it's not always the best for them um I'm also wondering how did he react to the newborn baby you said you have a one month old how was his reaction uh, to that? Oh, yeah. Uh, he's just, um, um, I kind of say, okay, if there's a blanket um, of him, he just put the blanket on him. He gives him his pacifier. He um, talks to him if he cries. Um, and the only thing that we got out of him, like I could say, I don't know if, if it's jealousy or not. He just says, I don't want to go to school. Mm-hmm. Um, for like a few weeks, and then after that, he was fine. He just um, 
went to school. You mean since the baby was born, he said he didn't want to go to school? Yes. Did he say why? Did you get to talk to him about maybe why? Um, Yes. He he cannot talk much. Sure. I mean, he's not three. I understand. Yeah. But what I understood is uh, he wanted to stay at home because a lot of people were were visiting us. There were, like home was much more fun than okay. school because we had um, guests over, like my brother and friends were here. So he just wanted to hang out here. Okay, and maybe that and that's that could be a part of it. There also could be a part where he was afraid of losing you to this new baby who was taking a lot of your time and attention. I'm sure. So he could have had a fear, yeah. a slight fear of that also, that if he leaves, kind of like his spot is being taken, you know, so we have to be uh, aware of that. So kids don't always show, you know, he might not tell, especially at his age where verbalizing is not going to be as easy. He might get to not tell you so clearly, I'm jealous of this boy or I'm afraid to lose my position. He might not even understand it himself, but we have to be aware that yeah. it's not an easy thing for a child to go through to see this new baby in the home and to see how much right. time and attention you give. Now, is your husband showing more time to him giving him the older son more attention actually we both um uh, give him a lot of okay, attention good. um yeah and then um whenever he wants us to hug him we hug him whenever he wants him like me putting him to sleep i do it it's fine it's he i don't see that he is jealous of him or he's afraid of um losing any of us okay. or yeah when he came Maybe just a little bit, not much, not it's even it's not concerning. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, you know, pay attention to it. Could obviously change. It's only been one month. You know, we want to be. I'm not saying we want it to happen, but we're aware that it can happen. Another thing is when your son says no in the home. How do you guys yeah. usually respond? Like if he says, "I don't um, want to do this." Yeah. If he's um, if he's being reasonable, we accept it. Like we accept if he's no. Okay. Um, now, what do you, when he's being reasonable, what if he's being unreasonable? Then what do you what do you say to him? Um, like, for example, if he's on a high chair and he wants to, like, um, as he says, making soup, and <laughs> we are like late for school, and we says no, and he's like, um, no, I want to do that, and then we are like, okay, so um, I'll count to ten, and then if then you have to be over with it, and then. Um, yeah, he has like 10 seconds to play with it. If so, this is no. So. And he's okay with that? And he's okay, okay. yeah. Now, I'd also say, um, it seems like you're trying to you know, talk with him and give him what he wants, which is good. But also, uh, you know, sometimes, of course, as a parent, you can't give your child what they want. They might say they want to go play when it's time to go to sleep. They might want to, uh, you know, go play in the street. We can't just say, okay, I'm going to say, obviously, do what you want. But always what I tell parents is you want to say yes to his feeling even if you say no to what he's asking for. So when he says, I want to play soup, you know, play, make my food and play soup, whatever it is, you can tell him, you know, I know how much you'd like to play it and it's so much fun, but right now we have to go. And also you can yeah. tell him, give him a time where he can play later. Say, you know, we have to go to yeah. the, there. When we come back today, me and you are going to play soup on this right here. We're going to play. Is that good? And then, and then see what he says. So, you know, because you're saying he um, doesn't say no much, especially in public, what you want to do is encourage him that when he's saying no, it, it's a, a good thing, not a bad thing. You know, you want to make yeah. that a very, okay, you, no, oh, what do you think? What's your opinion? You know, Oh, you don't like this. You're feeling yeah. this way. You want to really uh, empower him and that his feelings are okay. There could yeah. be something where he has, that maybe if it's 
he just might be very okay with things, which is not a bad thing. But maybe yeah. if at home he's different than at school, there could be a social anxiety or a discomfort he's having there where there he's more passive. But I wouldn't uh-huh. get too overly concerned, but I would just make sure you keep encouraging him to just express himself however he wants at home. And, uh-huh. you know, don't make it a big deal. Say, oh, you have to get angry if a kid cuts you in line or something like that. He maybe just doesn't care that much. That can be okay. He might have a mild temperament. As a baby, did he not cry very much? No. He didn't he cry. Was very easy. Yeah. No, he was very easy. And then... um. Uh, we had a lot of play days since he was like six months old, like every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, even back then, he never grabbed a toy out of anybody's hand. Like he was just was staring at the toy, and whenever like he or she was done, he was just going um, to get the toy. Um, hmm. Okay, uh, you know, I don't. I wouldn't say these things are huge, like alarming. He seems like he has a very easy temperament. He's not. Yeah. He doesn't get frustrated very easily. So those things can be okay. Maybe he just feels okay. You know, just keep an eye on it as he gets older. I wouldn't get too afraid that it means he's going to be passive his whole life. But I would do what it seems like you're doing is you communicate with him. You always make him seem and know that his opinion and his feelings are important and you want to know and you take them seriously. And like I said, even if he asks for something, you can't give it to him. Make sure you show him that you understand how he feels and how he feels is okay. Yes, you know, you, you we have to leave, but you want to play. I could understand that, right? The kid wants to play. They don't get that we have an appointment at 3.15 and we have to be there. He's having fun and he wants to enjoy that moment. So always make it very clear to him that, oh, I know you want to play. This is so fun. But, you know, right now we do have to go to this meeting. We're going to come or whatever it is, this appointment or to someone's house. But we're going to come back and play here. Me and you are going to play with the soup, okay? And then make him, you know, so he knows that what he's asking for you care about. It's important and you take it very seriously. And then we'll see what happens as he gets older with that, and I'm sure you'll keep an eye on it. The thing is, he's very okay with us explaining. If if he says no, he says no. He says a lot of no's. But if you explain it, he understands it. Like, but I'd say even when he says when he says no, when he says no, and you want to explain it again, if it's in a situation you have to do it, you know, you really think there's you can't say yes to him. But show him and his no is valuable by doing what he says. So he says, no, let's do it this way. Say, okay, we're going to eat in the living room, not the kitchen today. You know what I mean? If he makes a request that you can follow through on, say yes to his no. He says, no, I don't want to do this. Okay, what do you want to do? Let's do it this way. Okay, mommy will come sit on the floor with you. You know, just give him, show him that his no is valuable, not just, it's good that you talk to him and reason with him. And that's very good. And like I said, sometimes you have to do that. You can't always just say yes to whatever he's saying. But make right. sure that on a lot of his no's, even if it's a little uncomfortable, but you can do it, show him that you value his opinion and his no by doing it. If he says, let's do this, or I don't want to do that, say, okay, we don't have to do that now, if, if you can. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. And then, um, so he's going to like have an effect if it's saying no in public it might i mean i don't and i don't want you to you know make sure you don't put a pressure on him that okay you know when you see him is he saying no how is he saying no because he'll start to feel that over time that you want him to say no just let him you know make him let him feel comfortable however he's being but like i said when you have control over the interaction make sure he he feels that what he's saying really does matter okay you don't want to do that we won't do it or you want us to do this today let's try that you know give him that Mm -hmm. power so not just tell him we're doing this or that but ask him for his opinion okay what do you want us to do today where should we go where you know what should we do what should we eat where should we eat you know give him some more 
of those types of opportunities. Like I said, we can pay attention. Does he have some kind of social anxiety or fear when he's at school so he's more passive? Or is he just maybe more okay and, and he handles it? It seems like his temperament is very mild and he's very easygoing. We don't want to just forget about that he has feelings sometimes that are going to be different. But I, I, what you're telling me doesn't sound very concerning. I would just keep an eye on it and see how he's doing. Um, uh, how would I know if it's not a social anxiety? Because I know um, he's not shy, but sometimes when people speak uh, in English with him, he just look down and oh, doesn't want okay. to look in their eyes, you know? So um, is his English not very good? No. Well, that's okay. So that's a problem. Maybe so that could be something. When he's there, it's like a foreign environment for him. He's so comfortable in the house, but there he feels like you know he kind of feels this disadvantage. He doesn't feel as comfortable. So you know that that can be an issue. And I would make sure you know make his English is getting better, so he feels confident about that. So it's not just maybe a social anxiety, but just a an anxiety or discomfort about how he feels that when it's English, I'm kind of not as strong or I'm not as comfortable and I have to just do what they want to do. You know, it's, it's like he's not, he's not in his, literally his home turf. At home he's comfortable, but there he's not. So that's something that his English, hopefully as it gets better, he'll feel comfortable with that. Even, you know, you're taking him to play dates, that good work, that's good where he'll get to practice more English because maybe you're not talking to him too much in English. You can start to do that more, but give him that exposure to English language. So even in the home, don't just play Persian music or Persian things, play English things for him. He needs that. But the thing is, he watched a lot of like iPad and TV in, only in English, not even okay, in good. Farsi. Okay. But he insists, insists to speak in Farsi. Like, if I say, just say, what is the color of this? Say blue, and he says, obi, obi. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, he yeah. insists to uh, speak in Farsi. And uh, I should add to the, um, uh, my last comment that um, we have a lot of plated with Persian families, and even with them, um, they all speak Farsi, but even with them, he's too, um, like, yeah, too calm. He just, um, if all of them are playing with one toy, he stay back and then watch them. And whenever they are done, and he mm. goes play with the with that toy. Um, yeah, I, do, I mean, it's hard. You know, I'm, I'm trying to. I'm picturing it. It does seem like he's almost trying not to hurt anyone or upset anyone, rather than wanting what he wants too much. He wants to not. He's avoiding a conflict. Actually, yes, he's you. You, yeah, you mentioned a very good point because, um, you know, in their school, they are new kids and they start crying when their mother is gone. The only kids that were looking at them, like going for comfort them, it was my my <laughs> son. <laughs> you know, um, I was like, and I'm. I never taught him this. I never... No, yeah, well, and you have to be aware of how he... It doesn't seem like you tried to get him to feel that way, and I'm not saying you've done something, but you want to really make sure as he's getting older, you show him that what he feels matters a lot. What he wants matters. And that's why I'm saying ask for his opinion and do it his way with a lot of things in the home. Okay. So, Shomoke, okay, you want to do this? We're going to... And, and just give him that idea that what you want really does matter. We want you to think about that. Okay? All right. Okay. Nice talking Thank to you. you so Best of yeah, luck. Take care. Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to our next caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, Farid. Hi. Um, I asked my question, and I'll listen from the radio. Uh, we have become uh, grandparents recently okay. to a girl, 
And uh, my question is, what should be the role of grandparents through through stages of development? Mm-hmm. Okay, and you you said you don't want to. That's that's the only question you had. Uh, yes, unless you have questions for me. Well, I mean, how do you have any other grandkids? No, this is the first one. <laughs> okay, very. That's very exciting. Congratulations, and it's and you're currently married. Yes. Okay, and do you have any thoughts yourself of what you want to do or how involved you'd like to be? Um, I don't want to be be over involved, and uh, would like to know psychological stages that are appropriate and the uh, level of the extension of involvement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What should be? Well, I think that's a good a good question. I think your um, and your original what you just said, but you don't want to be overly involved, is a good place to start because I think sometimes uh, I, I'd say my concern more is that grandparents can. They can play a very beautiful role. The, the relationship they can have, grandparent and grandchild, is a very sweet and unique one where, you know, there's just a lot of outpouring of love. But oftentimes what happens is grandparents, um, they can start to contradict some of the thing the parent, things the parents want to do, and that's a big issue. Or they get involved with the parenting, uh, imposing their own thoughts and beliefs onto the family, which is definitely not okay. So right. the grandparents, just like in a different way, aunts and uncles play a supportive role. You know, you're there, you spend time with them, you give love to the kids. Of course, usually the grandparents and other family members give gifts and nice things, and that can be all very good. But as you mentioned, you want to make sure you're not interfering with the process of the family. So, um, you know, even when it comes to things like helping out with the children, I would say even help out more with things like errands. You spend time with the kids, but rather than saying, I'll babysit the kids and I'm going to be the one taking care of them, as much as you can, taking care of other things for the new new parents because they have a lot of things going on, helping more in that supportive role is even more helpful to allow the bonding to happen within the family. So, um, you know, not just babysitting, but okay, running errands for them, picking up things for them. Even if you come to the home, if you'd like to help out around the home, to even allow for more of that time between between the family. So I don't know if I'd say the grandparents have this specific role they have to fill that they need. I think it could be very meaningful, the relationship they can create with them. And as they get older, they can have someone else to communicate with and get support from. But I think what I see even more, and especially in Iranian families, and you see it in, of course, others as well, is that the grandparents come in and say, I know how to parent. I've done this before. I raised you. So let me show you how you do this. Where what we really want is for the the new mother and father to have their own parenting style and culture they're going to have with their children and we want to stay out of it so we don't want to say oh you're doing this wrong you're doing that wrong you know you you should feed them this way you shouldn't do this way you have to discipline them this way don't be too lenient don't hug them too much don't hug them too little we don't want to get you know the grandparents getting more involved actually can cause more much more harm than i'd be concerned about the grandparents not being as involved so that's one you know one very big way let them you know if your children or your you know your your kid's husband or wife, however it is, wants to come to you guys for advice, that's nice. But as in any case, we don't want to impose our invi- our advice or our way of doing things on on someone else because what's very important is for the parents to be involved. Now, I'd also recommend, you know, grandparents not living with the, the other family. We want to give the family 
a the space to have their nuclear family in general. I know it sometimes happens in families, but we want to give them that space. The bond needs to be made with the child and his or her mother and father more than with, with these other the other family members. So we want to give them that space as well. Um, so, you know, for me, a really big part of it is yeah, giving them love, giving them support, sh- you know, showering them in that way, but making sure we stay out of the way and don't interfere with the parenting in any way. All right. Yeah. So during the first 18 months, it's, um, two years, the first two years, um, how much should be the extent of contact with the child while she is developing her brain? That's the main question, actually. By contact, it, you mean like how often you should see the grandchild? Yeah, I mean, by babysitting, is it allowed like uh, while they're at work, or is what? it better to avoid as much as possible? Well, I mean, so here's the thing. You know, I would say, of course, parents being there is most important. But if they are choosing to go back to work and aren't there... I don't think grandparents being there is bad. Um, so, you know, that's that's what I would say is that, you know, if you're saying, oh, don't you go to work because I'm going to watch the kids. It's not what you're saying. That would be one thing. But if they're saying we're already going to work, either we're getting a babysitter or going to daycare or we can have grandma and grandpa, I'd say, well, that grandma and grandpa can can work and that can be OK. I'm not I don't, I'm not against that, um, but I would rather the, the parents be there more involved so ideally yes i'd want the mom home and the dad home as much as possible but if that's not the case and you're going to support in that way i think that can be okay up until a point where maybe the child can go to daycare at least even a few hours a day when they get maybe two and have that experience of being there can be okay not for too long um but i wouldn't say don't i wouldn't want you not to go because i'm saying don't interfere so by interfere means that you're taking a space where the mom and dad could fill the role but if they're not there then you being there and your wife being there, I think, can be a wonderful thing. All right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling. And again, congratulations. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. We're going into our last commercial break. Studio number 310 You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Talakwi. To end the show, I wanted to share a story with you that I um, recently saw on CNN. They did a little segment on it, and then I read a little bit more about it to learn about the situation and some thoughts I had about this actually very heartwarming and touching story, but I think we can look at it in a lot of different ways, which I will talk about today. So let me tell you a bit about the background of the story. So Officer Che Milton in Atlanta was on his first week as a police officer when he got called to a dollar store to um, from a reported shoplifting. Now, when he arrived, he found that the suspect was only 12 years old and the shoes she was trying to steal were only $2. Um, add to that, the shoes that she was stealing were actually for her five-year-old sister. She was trying to do something nice for her or get her something uh, for her family, who unfortunately is very poor and really can't afford much. Now the officer was kind of in a dilemma there. He could report the uh, shoplifting and, you know, uh, 
basically give the girl a record for shoplifting would be on her record, or he could try to do something else. And he said he didn't have the heart to do that and didn't feel fair for this young 12-year-old to have a record because of trying to steal $2 shoes for her baby sister, her little sister. So instead, he drove the girl home and um, found that the girl lives in a very rough and poor part of town and went into their home and saw they barely have any furniture um, and that there was, the mom was there and the mom explained that there are seven people in this house, mom and dad and five kids. Husband works a lot of jobs and the wife, because she can't afford childcare, stays home with the kids, but really they can't afford much. Um, so what Officer Milton did next was actually he went to a nearby pizza place and brought back four large pizzas for them to have food because he saw there wasn't even much food in the house. Um, and that since then he's gone, and this was in February, he's gone a few times dropping off diapers, clothes, and checking in on him, them. Not only that, what happened next was that his own police department, he said he was afraid he was going to be in trouble, but responded positively. And since then, many people have been collecting things and sending donations to this family. Uh, so we can see this officer uh, really did a great deed, and his deed, as we often see when people show compassion and do good things, is contagious and more people have contributed. Now, there's a lot of aspects of the story that I found interesting. Of course, I was very touched by the story itself, and I think the officer did a great thing and made the right choice. Um, punishing this 12-year-old girl, I don't think would have done much good at all and maybe even would have affected her future by having a record, but what he did instead was to try to help them. You know, And this is something we see a lot in society or just in general, people who are breaking the law or acting out in some way, even if it's a child acting out in a more minor way, it's not because they are bad or they, and they need to be punished to get this badness out of them, which we know doesn't work, but actually it's coming from some other type of need, whether it's an emotional need or really physically they need the money or they can't afford something and they're stealing. That's a very different thing than from someone who's stealing out of, let's say, greed. Or um, if you ask me, uh, someone who's committing some kind of fraud for millions of dollars when they're already wealthy, that's much worse of a crime than this girl who's stealing $2, yet very often that first crime gets uh, no punishment where people who are shoplifting when they really need it, unfortunately, do get punished. So I think the officer made the right choice, but of course this speaks not just to this one child, but in general in our criminal justice system, especially what we have in the United States, where we think punishment is going to lead to better outcomes, but we're finding that that's not the case. Punishment doesn't work. I'm not saying that there should be no prisons and no one should ever have consequences to their actions. Absolutely not. But the way we approach when people break the law can have a better impact for all of society when we recognize rather than treating them as uh, criminals and dehumanizing them, we could try to really understand their story and what's going on and give them help, not only just for themselves, but then they can actually contribute more to society. And actually, the mother said um, that because of everyone's generosity that the family has received, the young girl, the 12-year-old who originally was caught for shoplifting, she wants to give back to the community herself, where she's saying, well, we have things that no longer fit any of the kids, let's donate them to other people. So we're seeing that if we punished her, I'm sure it would have had a much worse consequence, but by giving her kindness and generosity and seeing that there can be a different, a better path for her even, or that she can do more good, she's doing that herself. 
Um, now there's other things, you know, I'm, I'm generally, people might consider me an optimist and I usually am, but even in a beautiful story like this, there was parts of it that did still broke my heart. Of course, the family themselves, it's very heartbreaking. But what I also think is, okay, this family is getting this outpouring of support, um, love and financial things, clothing, diapers, and all these things that they need. But I'm sure they live in this neighborhood and there's a family next door that needs it just as much, but isn't getting it. So, you know, we sometimes have these stories and they make us feel good. Like, oh, we're, we're helping people and we're, we're doing something for them and oh, how nice it is. And we feel good about ourselves, but we forget the bigger problem that this is just one family amongst thousands or really millions of people, even in the United States who are living in poverty. So, so many people donating to one family is great, but we're missing the bigger picture or the bigger problem that there's so many people that are suffering. I heard a statistic said one in five children have suffer from hunger in some way or don't really have enough food in the United States. In the United States of America, the country this wealthy and powerful, we have these types of issues. So when I see this story and I, I, you know, you're looking at this family and it's so beautiful to see the outpouring of gifts and this officer really, what a wonderful thing he did um, and is, you know, sacrificing his time and his money to help this family. That's a beautiful thing. And I definitely see a lot of good in that. But as I was watching this on, on CNN, I was imagining the house right next door where no one knows their name and no one is helping them and they're suffering in the same way. So it reminds me that there's so much more work to do and we can't, although it can, it's a feel good story. We can't feel too good when we remember that there's lots of other people who are suffering and we need to do something about that. We have to look at the bigger picture. Now, another thing that I, I always think when I hear about stories like this is this is a type of story that almost everyone would see as positive and almost everyone would agree on as a good thing. Here in the United States, especially, there's hard to find something that every everyone will agree on. We're so polarized right now, the left versus right, Republican versus Democrat, that there's almost no issue, really, that people see eye to eye on that's that has any kind of value to it. Almost everything has disagreement and there's some kind of partisan line and partisan politics at play that people see differently. But people look at a story like this and I think both people from the left and the right see it as a nice thing. They would, they'd be touched by it. They think it's a beautiful thing. And I don't mean at all to get political and really that's not my intent, but something I've talked about before that breaks my heart, especially here in the United States, is that helping the poor has become a partisan issue. Really, the way it's kind of come down is that if you're a more left-leaning liberal, you're more supportive of it, but more on the right wing, the line can often be that that is, you know, creating a safety net that isn't good, it's entitlements, and we shouldn't be helping the poor. Uh, at least that's the way I see it. And I'm not trying to say you should be more liberal or more uh, Republican or more Democrat about any issue. But when it comes to this, I would hope that we see that helping the poor is not a political issue. It's a human rights issue. And even if we look at the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, it says that every person has the right to a home and to food and shelter and those basic comforts. It's not a privilege it's not something only some people deserve or you should lose. It's a right. It's a human right. So I'm not talking about a political issue here. For me, it's a human rights issue that people should not be living in extreme poverty. Of course, not just in the United States, but across the world. And we all have to take that as our 
problem, as our issue. And I really hope we come to a point where we stop seeing it as a political issue and see it as a human rights issue, that people don't deserve to live in this type of poverty. So helping this person, you know, when we look at the story and people say it's a good thing, but to me it's like, well, before other people got involved, we have this police officer who, if he's a new police officer, I don't know the exact salary, but he's not making so much money. And yet we're very okay when we see the story and say, oh, it's wonderful that he's helping. And he, with his probably middle-class uh, income and middle-class household, is supporting this other family or giving some money to them. If that's such a good thing, I have a hard time comprehending why, if the government were then to help them, which has so much more, of course, resources and power and can allocate it in a much more systematic and better way, why is that not a good thing? Why is it bad if then the government does it, but it's okay if one individual who actually doesn't have as much does it. it I really, I, I do have a hard time comprehending that distinction because I've seen stories like this before and I always am touched by them that a police officer catches someone stealing or doing something and rather than pressing charges, sees that they really are in need and supports them. So we're very much in favor of individuals helping when they even sometimes have a harder time doing so or don't have the resources to do so. But when it comes to the government being involved, we somehow see that as this political thing that, no, we, sh we shouldn't be doing that. And from what we know, the research shows us that when you give people resources like housing, the homeless, when they're housed, when they're no longer homeless, the outcomes are much better than when we think they somehow have to figure it out on their own. So it's not about giving it to them so that they become quote unquote lazy and don't have to work for it, but it's actually giving them the environment, giving them the resources they need to then go work themselves. When you are homeless, it's very difficult to go get a job, which is something, you know, I remember since I was a kid that that's what people would yell at homeless people when they would ask for money, they say, go get a job. Well, you think someone in that type of condition can just walk into Goldman Sachs and say, I'd like to have a job interview, or even walk into McDonald's and ask for a job interview, usually they can't. It's not so simple. And on top of that, many people experiencing homelessness are de dealing with medical and mental illness, sometimes drug addiction. So much more is going on than we can just say, get a job. So when I say help the poor, it's not in an entitlement type of a way to just give them something, but it's first recognizing that we should never accept people living in certain conditions. And I was just on Skid Row this past Friday. When you see the conditions people are living in, it's hard to comprehend that this is okay and that we can accept this, especially when you're, you're standing there on Skid Row, you can see the high rises of downtown LA where there is such an accumulation of wealth. It really is hard to comprehend or make sense of this state of affairs and how things are. So for me, it's that we can't accept people living in these conditions. We should just not tolerate that. But on top of that, that we all win as a society when we actually help these people, because then they in turn can contribute to society, which helps them feel better because everyone has this need to feel productive, to feel that they can contribute. But of course, then we reap the benefits of what they do contribute themselves. So, you know, this story again, you know, I think Officer Che Milton, we deserve to say his name again because what he did was heroic. And I think he went the extra mile to show that I'm not just here to enforce laws, but 
I'm supposed to protect the community. I'm supposed to be involved and engaged in the community and care about the members of my community. So what he did really was heroic. But I think it's worth noting that if we think what he did was so wonderful and so heroic, we should also take that approach as a society that we want to help and give back to those who really, truly need it. And that when people are suffering, it's not a us versus them. It's all of us. We are all, you know, one family, as cheesy and cliche as that sounds, but really that's how I would hope we can see it, that no one's suffering goes unnoticed or no one's suffering is less important than anyone else's suffering, that we take them all seriously. So I hope you'll you'll take a look at this story about Officer Che Milton in Atlanta and how he interacted with this 12-year-old girl rather than punishing her I went to really see what was going on in her life and now has created a connection with that family and others have helped as well. But I hope we'll, we'll recognize there's other families um, like this one that definitely deserve our help and support. And as a society, we would hopefully take the measure or take the approach of helping all these people rather than ignoring their suffering. Um, we've reached the end of today's show. I'll repeat the book for this week, which I'll talk about on Monday night's show, is The Invisible Gorilla, How Our Intuitions Deceive Us by Christopher Chabris and Daniel Simons. Again, if you have any books you'd like to recommend, either on my Twitter, my Instagram, or Facebook, send me a message or even a picture of the book, and maybe I'll make it one of the books of the week by the end of this year. All right. Thank you to all the callers and listeners out there. Thank you to Rahman here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolokwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.